say that that's not something you do when you're, you do it when you're 25, but not when you're 41? Is that what you said? Yeah. Thank you, James. Um, I did it when I was 41, by the way. <laughs> oh, man. Tammy uh, Bodkin. That song you did it, yeah, was that called, what was that called? Where'd you go? Nothing else? Where'd that come from? I don't remember that song. Once? Can you be ready to sing that at the end again? Can you just come up and do it again? Okay, that'd be great. Whew. You know, when you sing, when you sing songs like that, right, I, they're true and they're not true, <laughs> right? I want nothing else but Jesus. I know that's the way it's supposed to be. And it reminds me of the Psalms. David is constantly talking to himself. You know, why so downcast, soul? Let's go. You know, so in some ways when we sing those songs, I don't know if you feel at all conscientious about singing something that you kind of know isn't fully true in your own heart. But we, we sing those things as prayers that we are hopeful uh, to become more and more true. Because we know he's all that we need. So when we say, you're all that I need, you're all that I want, it's a hopeful prayer um, to the extent that it isn't true. And for, maybe for most of you, it's mostly true. I know it is for me. But it's challenging. We, uh, we are not perfect. No news there, right? If that is news to you, so if you could fill out a Connect card and... Um, <laughs> Uh, ask for prayer. That would be good. We aren't perfect. And we're going to talk about that a little bit today. Uh, we, we aren't where we want to be, and we're not where God wants us to be. But we can be on our way if we're uh, intentional about it, if we're conscientious about it. Um, thank you for being here. Um, let's get rolling. Let's keep going in Ezra and uh, Nehemiah. I'm going to start in Matthew chapter 7. This is Jesus. This is a sermon on the mount. He's partway through it here. And he says, and he's speaking to, in a sense, to what he has been teaching, uh, which is largely matters of the heart. He's changing the paradigm of the listener. He's changing the paradigm of the, the God-centered person. And he's suggesting that why we do things and the, the sincerity with which we do things is more important, in a sense, than the obedience itself. He's calling people to obedience. He's, you know, it's, it's not a dismissal of uh, what God has ordained in the past, but he is suggesting and demonstrating and teaching there is a deeper element to the transformation uh, of our lives, there's a deeper element to what it is to be godly than what it looks like on the outside and how it works. And he's referring to those words and those teachings, and he says, anyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practices like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rains come, the streams rise, the winds blow, they beat against the house, yet it doesn't fall because its foundation is on the rock. 
But if you hear my words and you don't put them into practice, you're like a foolish man who builds his house on the sand. When the rain and the streams and the winds come and beat against the house, it falls with a great crash. Here's a, one of many questions that I think come out of hearing those words. Does it matter how well you build the house? Should we build good houses if we can? I mean, if any house is going to hold up on the rock, why not put your resources somewhere else? Well, why not help your friends build a stronger house, particularly those that are building on the sand? <laughs> you know, how good, does that, how good do we have to be here? You know, hey, if it's going to survive, can we do shoddy work? Can we be sort of obedient? We're building a house. We're building a house. We're building something. We're on mission. God's got a purpose and a meaning for your life, and hopefully you're up to it. How good does it have to be? I doubt that Jesus was considering the records of Ezra and Nehemiah and the rebuilding of the house of God 500 years after it had been originally built by Solomon. I doubt it, but he might have. He could have been. I wouldn't be surprised if he was. God had mercifully and inarguably led the Israelites out of Babylonian captivity. That, that's what we're talking about. That they had become wicked in many ways. God's own people had become so distant from him. They had begun worshiping other gods that he just kicked them out. He's just like, just like in the garden. It's like, out of the pool. It's time to go. Can't have you here. And he uses the armies of the world and the brutal regimes and they, they're gone. They get moved. Not only the northern tribes and the southern tribes, different times, they, he gets rid of them. And what we read in Ezra and Nehemiah is the return of those people, generations removed, back to Jerusalem. Most of the people that came back weren't there originally. They were grandchildren. But they were on their way back. And that's where we find ourselves. And they're coming back with an express purpose to rebuild the house of God. And of course, to build it on a good foundation. But they slowly realize, and what we are picking up as we read through these historic accounts, is that the foundation that it needs to be built on isn't strictly structural it's spiritual. It starts to come very clear in the latter parts of the book of Ezra. But I wanted to go back to Ezra chapter 1 just as a reminder. It's spiritual. Beyond the good construction of an obedient life, right? Like I said, you're building a house with your obedience, with the understanding of the call of your life, Beyond that, though, God values the condition of the heart within the servant. You might say that he values a life of integrity and, uh, uh, and not hypocrisy. 
We miss this oftentimes when we read the Old Testament, but God has always been about sincerity of heart. We get caught up in the law of Moses and the, and the, and the way that life is supposed to be lived, and there, there are those uh, directives. But within it, you see again and again that God is concerned about the condition of the heart of the obedient servant. And Jesus made that patently clear. He called for righteousness, your righteousness, my righteousness, those that were listening to him. He called for their righteousness to be higher than that and greater than that of the Pharisees. And the Pharisees were ostensibly perfect. How could your righteousness exceed that of the Pharisees when the Pharisees is perfect? It has to be deeper and more sincere. This is what Jesus was calling us to, that righteousness is rooted in the heart. And when the heart is bad, the righteousness is lost, no matter how good you appear to be on the outside. But Ezra chapter 1, it's the first year of Cyrus, the king of Persia. And the king of Persia hears from God and directs him to see the temple in Jerusalem rebuilt. So he makes a proclamation, and he says, this is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judea. Any of his people among you, and he's speaking to the Israelites, you may go up to Jerusalem in Judea and build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem, and may their God be with them. So he is, in a sense, blessing the return of the exiles. And he gives them a bunch of resources to pull it off. Then the family heads of Judah and Benjamin, two of the tribes of, of Israel, and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose heart God had moved, prepared to go up and build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. That's the plan. God's given us a clear directive. It's come oddly, surprisingly, through a pagan king. Nonetheless, we are going to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. We're going to rebuild it. And they take it very seriously. No less seriously than you take the obediences of your life the calls that God has put before you, the mission that he has you on. I know you. I'm privileged to know you. I've known many of you for 16 years, longer. And you take your faith very seriously. With all the strength that you can muster, you aim today as much as ever before to hear from God, to obey him, and to help others to do the same. It's one of the most beautiful things to see. It's impressive. It's inspiring. If I ask for a show of hands on how many of you want to do a good job, in all aspects of your life, including your life of faith, I suspect most of your hands would go up. We want to do a good job. We want to live a God-pleasing life. We want to make a difference for God. We want to build a good house. We do. You do. If we could, I dare say, we would 
perfectly carry out the mission of God that he has for us. If I asked again for a show of hands, how many understand the call of God on your life? And if you do, do you want to do it perfectly? (laughs) Who would say no to that? Do you want to do what God has called you to do personally and incorporately with this church? Do you want to do it perfectly? Wouldn't, wouldn't we? I, I think that's true for almost any phase of life. If, if you could work toward and have the perfect marriage, would you do it? <laughs> yeah. If you could perfectly steward your time and your resources, would you? I bet you would. If you could perfectly execute your vocational responsibilities, the job that you've been blessed with, would you? I'm guessing you would. I'm guessing you're trying to. I want to go on record and say, I'm trying to have a perfect marriage. My wife's not here today. She's, she's preaching at Ethos, friends of ours. They're doing some mental health kind of stuff, and she's teaching there. I'd like the word to get back to her, if you don't mind. <laughs> that I said I'm aiming for a perfect marriage. If you could perfectly raise your children, if you could be the perfect friend, if you could make the perfect decisions, wouldn't you? And aren't you trying? If you could even live a perfect day, imagine living a perfect day. Wouldn't that be incredible? To not end the day with some sense of regret or shame or um, sense of uh, 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 lack of productivity. Wouldn't you want to live the perfect day? Wouldn't you want to be uh, Bill Murray in Groundhog Day? You know, what, you know that's what that story is about. I don't know when, it's got to be 30, 40 years old by now, but I watch it probably once a year. It's wonderfully done. Wonderfully done. If you don't know it, Bill Murray goes up to Punxsutawney, Pennsylvania and uh, is a news reporter uh, 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 covering the, 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 the Groundhog Day. And he gets stuck in the same day, wakes up every morning at 6 a.m. to a Sonny and Cher song, I think. Every day. And at first he can't figure out what's going on and then he does figure it out. And then he realizes he can do whatever he wants. It doesn't matter because he's going to wake up the next morning the same person. So he indulges himself. Eventually, it becomes insane. He can no longer handle the same day, the same people, the same interactions. And he spends a lot of time trying to kill himself. He's jumping in front of trucks, driving off of cliffs throwing a toaster in a bathtub with him, he's, and every, boom, he wakes up. He can't do it. But he's losing his mind, and then eventually he realizes he could improve every day. And so he sets about improving himself every day. Starts taking piano lessons over and over and over again. And eventually, he gets the day exactly Right? His timing is exactly right. His words are exactly right. His actions are exactly right. He's the life of the party. When the director was interviewed about that job, the question was asked, because, you know, you, you kind of get the sort of the summary of, of that process. You know, it's kind of like an abbreviated, you know, demonstration of this whole thing. But they asked the director, like, how many days... 
were repeated. And he said, we had in our mind 10,000. Did he relive the day 10,000 times? Which makes sense because by the end of it, he was an, he was an expert piano player. He could play multiple instruments very well. The view of those that were directing and producing the film was that he spent 20 years in the same day in order to perfect it. Now, it's a movie. But I think it's probably not far from the truth. It probably would take about 20 years to get one day right. It's a lot of effort. And when your life is given to God and our work is ordained by God, which it is as a Christian, wouldn't we even more so be aiming for perfection of our days? I think we normally are. We're trying to build a good house. And the Israelites were trying real hard. On a number of occasions, it was noted by the local rulers that they were hard at work making strong progress. In Ezra chapter 4, the opposition sends a letter to the Persian king and actually requests that they block the building. But in his letter, in their letter, they comment on how well the people are doing. The king should know, they write to King uh, Artaxerxes, from your servants in trans-Euphrates, the king should know that the people who came up to us from you have gone to Jerusalem are rebuilding the rebellious and wicked city. They are restoring the walls and repairing the foundations. Think, side note, this is like the origin of tattletelling. This is a, this is a letter to the king. You should know that the people who came up from you have gone to Jerusalem, are building the ball, the belly of some wicked city. They're restoring the walls, repairing the foundations. We just thought you should know. And it works. The complaint succeeds and they stop the building. My point is they were recognized as having been doing a good job building the house. Decades later, we don't know how long the building stopped. It's hard to, it's hard to figure out. Probably 15 years. Arguably 50, but it's probably a couple decades. Another letter is written to the, ne the next king. This time the local officials are saying, hey, can you look in the records and see what's going on here and what we should do about this? Because they are building with large stones and placing timbers in the walls. The work's being carried on with diligence is making rapid progress under their direction. So they've somehow started building again decades later and the people are like, is this what's supposed to be happening? And so they did a little search of the records and they find King Cyrus's original decree that yes, they're supposed to build and they say, let them build and give them everything they need to pull it off. Now, my point is simply this. They're working hard. They're working hard. But something's off. They're out of sync with each other, at the very least. In Ezra chapter 3, we read that the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord. All the people gave a great shout of praise, but many of the older priests and Levites, family heads, who had seen the former temple, wept aloud. <laughs> half the people are cheering and half the people are crying. They're out of sync. There's some explanations for why they were the way they were. 
What we suspect from the older ones is that when they see the foundation of the temple, they realize it's not going to be the same. I don't, I don't know if that means it was a smaller version or, or what it seemed to be or what. But when they saw the foundation, they were like, oh, this isn't going to be like it was before. This is going to be the kind of building that we want. You can see that they're starting to get possibly off track. It's not about the building, but it was about the building quite a bit. They're working real hard. But then you remember when, the, when their neighbors asked if they could help out, which were in fact some of their relatives, they said, no, we alone will build it for the Lord. And now they're way off track. It's, it's all about them building this thing. We are going to do it. You can read between the lines. We're going to get the credit for this. Us, the pure Israelites. They're off. Something, something isn't right. They keep going. They keep building. And eventually, they rebuilt their religion, their ceremony, the building itself, all the practices that go along with it. And they were doing it in spades with the resourcing of both the crushed <laughs> we're sourcing of both the, 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 the crushed Babylonians. They were crushed by the Persians and they got all that stuff the Babylonians took that Persians gave it back to them. So they have all these materials. They have all these resources. It's hard. It is hard to build a house for the Lord. It takes a long time. You look at our own situation. It's actually fairly similar. Lots of positives and lots of negatives. And the acquisition, not only of this building, if you recall, six, seven years ago, but the one we're currently in the middle of over there. Do you remember? Do you remember? A year ago, over a year ago, we didn't raise enough money. So we said, no, we can't do it. And then less than a month later, the owner calls back and says, okay, I'll do it for your price. Phenomenal. And we recommitted our funds to it and we had enough money. We were ready to close. First week in April. And on April Fool's, I kid you not, on April Fool's Day, I got the word that the, 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 the city had uh, mistakenly read the zoning and we didn't have it. We didn't have the zoning for it. And the board, rightly so, says, I don't think we should buy a building that we might not be able to use. In fact, don't. So we didn't. It was tough times. We anticipated a six-month process. And what happened during that six months? The bottom dropped out of the economy. Cost materials went up. Most of you lost some of your savings, quite a bit of your portfolio. All I could think was, we're going to get to the end of the six months. Even if all goes really well, we're not going to be able to afford this building anymore. But you reacted, you responded, you answered, and committed more funds than you had originally committed. Up and down and up and down as we try to build a building. Interest rates rising, all that. And now we have something. 
but we can't tell the community about it yet. Can't have a sign yet. We're not a public assembly place yet. We have an office space that we're allowed to put 417 people in. That's it. We can't really be a church, per se, to the community. It's our building. We can own it. We can, work. We can go in it. A bunch of us. And we meet on the ground floor because we can't meet on the upper floor because it's unsafe without a sprinkler system. And we're working on it. I can be a bit of perfectionist myself in some areas of life. From the mundane to the sublime. I'm not a gamer at all. I play one game, Fortnite. I mean, sometimes I just can't stop doing it because I haven't played the perfect game yet. It's impossible, but I keep trying, keep trying. It's like golf. You get that one shot that brings you back. Now I'm, I'm not playing Fortnite. I'm dealing with construction people and architects and lawyers, and they're working hard, but I'm frustrated most of the time. We're working hard to vet potential tenants, and we've got some wonderful ones lined up, and we worry, and I worry, about the patience of you, the church, as things are protracted. It's real similar, up and down and up and down. We shouldn't complain. We shouldn't be discouraged. Like I said, it took somewhere between 20 and 80 years, whichever one you want to pick, to complete the temple and rebuild it. I suspect 40, because God just does things in 40s. That's what I think it is. <laughs> the same is true for the Israelites, right? They, they wandered in the desert for 40 years. They had been given a clear directive, and there was a straight line, and we shouldn't have taken more than a month. And they wandered for 40 years, because God was up to something else. All that stuff, all that, all that up and down, all that intentionality, all that work, all that disruption, all that trouble, all that struggle for the Israelites and for us makes it real hard to keep your eyes on God and what he is up to. We get pretty focused on winning the game. There's a Latin motto that says, Nisi Dominus Frusta. It's based on Psalm 127, which says, unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labor in vain. Somehow we have to stay in a posture, in a space that God is up to something and he is going to accomplish what he wants to accomplish and we need to follow him and stay with him. Part of the reason I want Tammy to come back up and sing that song is because that is the heart of God. Whether we know fully what we want or what we need, God knows what we need is him. And he is largely about us being with him. It's the God we serve. He is not overly interested in the house we're building. He's interested in what happens to us and with him in the duration. Are you with me? Unless the house is built, unless our work is built, unless the purposes of our life are built upon the rock, they will not last no matter how well they are built. And they will not serve the purposes of the Lord. It's very hard to remember in the midst of the fray 
Isn't it? Isn't it hard to remember in the midst of your struggle, in the midst of your pain, in the midst of the past, in the midst of your doubts, in the midst of your frustrations, it is hard to remember that God is up to a much deeper work than the frustrations, than fixing the frustrations of your life. To remember that God, while we are renovating something for his purposes, while we're trying to get a building in shape so that we can worship in it and share it with others, he is building us. To remember that he is renovating me and you. That the work and the finished product are just a thing to show the strength of the rock beneath it. Even when it is finally built, if it's not clear and apparent to you and me and everybody else who looks that what's important about this building is that it's resting on the rock of God, it's going to just get wiped out. Case in point, when Ezra arrives 80 years after the beginning of the temple, building and the rebuilding of their religion, he finds hypocrisy. He finds a beautiful temple, a robust religion, and a lot of personal disobedience. Listen, Ezra chapter 9. After these things had been done, the leaders came to me, Ezra, and said, the people of Israel, including the priests and the Levites, have not kept themselves separate from the neighboring peoples with their detestable practices like those of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Jebusites and the Ammonites and the Moabites and the Egyptians and the Amorites. They have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and their sons and have mingled the holy seed with the peoples around them and the leaders and the officials have led the way in this unfaithfulness. And Ezra says, when I heard this, I tore my tunic and my cloak. I pulled hair from my head and beard and sat down appalled. Ezra is broken hearted and he outwardly shows the signs of his broken heartedness. And then everyone trembled at the words of the God of Israel gathered around him because of their unfaithfulness, uh, the unfaithfulness of the exiles. Somehow within the context of their obedience to the direction of God and a robust, robust set of religious practices, good relationships with the government authorities, and the general prosperity of life, they are falling in ways that originally brought the wrath of God that sent them away from Jerusalem. Sobering. Sobering, isn't it? You could be, I could be, very obedient and way off track with God. We could seem like the people, to the people around us that we have got it all together and we are as godly as they come and it could be completely wrong. Okay, let's learn a couple things here. <clears throat> this is, uh, this is uh, sort of an overarching point of, of really all the first six, seven, eight chapters of Ezra. God always wins we cannot lose sight of the fact that in the midst of our ups and downs and our unfaithfulness and our difficulties and our challenges, he is going to accomplish what he wants to accomplish. This is what we see in the, in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. Powerful regimes cannot stop him. Skepticism of people and ideologies other than godly ones cannot stop him. 
substantial need cannot stop him. Painful pasts do not stop him, and distressful futures cannot stop him. Think about how much we worry about those things. And not only in Ezra and Nehemiah, but throughout the Old Testament and the New, we see that as time spins and as people succeed and fail, God wins. If you take nothing else home today, remember the sovereignty and the power of God. He will not be thwarted, not by you or by anybody else. He's up to something good, very good, and it's going to come to pass. Secondly, perfection or religious rigor, although understandable why we would pursue it, isn't the goal. The goal isn't a perfect house. Should you try to build a good house? I asked that question in the beginning. I think so. I think we should try to build a good house. But if we start thinking that the good house is the goal, we've missed it. If we start to think that our perfect day is the goal, we have missed it. Perfection, religious rigor can be the enemy. The natural inclination is that great obedience makes a great person. That if I, that if I, if I do it all right, then I am all right. Performance-based godliness leads to one of only two ends in my experience, pride or shame. Pride in our success or shame in our failure. Our part, our part, our story within the greater story of the winning of God isn't to exhaust ourselves living the perfect Christian life. Listen to Jesus. Come to me. Come to me. All you who are weary and burdened. And in large part, Jesus is speaking to those who have been trying and trying and trying to live the perfect godly life. And he's saying, you're weary and you're burned out and you're tired and you're actually far away from me. Come to me you who are weary and burdened, and I will build your house for you. No, that's not what he says. He says, I will give you rest. Perfection is not the goal. Rest in him. Trust in him, faith in him. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Take the work that I give you and learn from me. I am gentle and humble in heart. While I work, I am humble. While I'm at work, I am at rest. While I'm work, I am at peace. While I am working for God, I am deeply connected to God. I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your soul. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Our part isn't to exhaust ourselves living the perfect Christian life, but to humbly confess our weakness and insufficiency and rest in the power and the mercy of God and the sufficiency of Jesus. 
Oh, I'm so glad you're coming. It's just perfect timing. <clears throat> Listen to Colossians 1.28. He is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom. This is Paul. So that we may present everyone with good houses. No. Fully mature in Christ. This is the goal. What does fully mature in Christ means? It means as I'm going through my life, as my insufficiencies are uncovered, as my failures are made apparent, I know where my sufficiency comes from. I know where my rest is found. I know what is most important. To this end, Paul says, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. Paul's a hard worker, dealt with a lot of problems in his own life and in the life of the church that he was trying to lead and the mission that he was on. But Christ was powerfully working within him to transform him. Perfection isn't the goal. Renovare is the goal. The ultimate God win and success is renovation of the human heart. The hearts of all people humbled and healed with him for all of eternity. That's God's goal. And it always begins with a humble confession. Then at the evening sacrifice, Ezra rose from his self-abasement with his tunic and cloak torn and fell on his knees with, with his hands spread out to the Lord his God and prayed, I am too ashamed and disgraced, my God, to lift up my face to you because our sins are higher than our heads and our guilt has reached to the heavens. From the days of our ancestors until now, our guilt has been great. Because of our sins, we and our kings and our priests have been subjected to the sword and captivity to pillage and humiliation at the hand of foreign kings. Just like today, he says. But now for a brief moment, the Lord our God has been gracious in leaving us a remnant and giving us a firm place in his sanctuary and so our God gives light to our eyes and a little relief in our bondage. Though we are slaves, our God has not forsaken us in our bondage. He has shown us kindness in the sight of the kings of Persia. He has granted us new life to rebuild the house of our God and repair its ruins. And he's given us a wall of protection in Judah and Jerusalem. But now, our God, what can we say? For we have forsaken the commands, the commands you gave through your servants, the prophets, when you said the land you are entering to possess is a land polluted by the corruption of its peoples. By their detestable practice, they've filled it with their impurity from one end to the other. Therefore, do not give your daughters in marriage to their sons or take their daughters for your sons. Do not take a seek a treaty of friendship with them at any time, that you may be strong and eat the good things of the land and then leave it to your children 
an everlasting inheritance. What has happened to us, Ezra says, as a result of our evil deeds and our great guilt. And yet, and yet, our God, you have punished us less than our sins deserved and have given us a remnant like this. The rock of our life is not the perfection of our work or even the depth of our character, but the faith we have in Jesus that undeservedly forgives our sins, assures our divine approval and our eternal security. His strength is made strong in our weakness, not in our perfection. It is in our shortcomings that we find our way to Jesus and recovery of our relationship with God. Jesus was talking about faith and he asked Peter, what do you say? Who do you say that I am? And Peter said, you're the Messiah, the son of the living God. I have faith in you, Jesus. You are what it's all about. You are the one. And Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter. And on this rock, the profession of your faith in me, the receiving of mercy through the work of Jesus to repair the relationship with God, the gift of faith upon that rock, I will build my church. Jesus never promises to see our work finished, but he promises to give us peace in the midst of it all for humble. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. That is the rock that underlies the work of our obedience. And that's part of the reason we decided to celebrate for a couple months. Because we get really wrapped up in the human side of this thing and the work and the delays and all of that. And we thought, you know what we should do? We just celebrate everything that God has done and is doing. Let's just camp there for a while. And let's let God build the building and the pace and the timing that he's gonna build it. Because he's gonna win. He's gonna win. Jesus doesn't promise to help us get it all done. But he promises to be with us. And that should be our highest goal to commune with him. In the midst of the great commandment, the great mission given to the people of God, listen to what Jesus says. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Make disciples of all nations. That's a lot of work. Big house. Lots of struggle. Lots of trouble. Teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And this is where, again, we're talking about the things of the heart. And surely I will ensure your success. No, again. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. That's the goal. So when we were singing this song before I started, I was like, oh, oh, wow, that's good. I thought maybe you wrote it. I wish. You wish. But you can sing it. Let's sing it. 
I think what's powerful about the song, let's go ahead and stand as we just close out.